Well, last week we did the grapes of wrath, and we saw God preparing His wrath. We prepared to have the seven bowls of God's wrath poured out, and we saw that the narrator says that in these bowls the wrath of God is complete. We saw that in 15.1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete, this word teleo to finish, fulfill, bring to fruition. And so now this week we're going to actually see the seven bowls poured out. So let's just get into it here in chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. Now it's interesting here, he says go pour it on the earth, but actually as we go through the seven bowls, they're going to be targeted at specific things relating to the earth. We're going to see the first one is upon the earth, and then on the sea, and then on the rivers and springs of water, then on the sun, then on the throne of the beast, then on the great river Euphrates, and then into the air. So these bowls are going to be all around, and they're going to bring to fruition, completion, the wrath of God. Now this wrath of God is not a new introduction to Revelation. We've seen the term numerous times. Let's just go through them. Revelation 6.16 speaks of the wrath of God. And the people who are under the judgment of the seals say to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So when these plagues are happening, just as in Egypt, and we see parallels with the plagues and the exodus out of Egypt all through Revelation, just as in Egypt, there's a complete recognition of where all this judgment's coming from. And this is the wrath of God. Revelation 11:18. There's a quote of an Old Testament passage, and it says, "...the nations were angry." And your wrath has come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints. It's interesting, until God brings his wrath in, cleans up the place, he can't really bring his servants, who are overcomers, to the place he wants them to be. It's kind of like the old western movies, and the new sheriff comes to town. The first thing the sheriff has to do is pour out his wrath on the town. And he cleans it up and gets all the bad guys. And usually in the movies, he doesn't put them in jail. He just shoots them in the street, right? That's normally the way that works. And then the people in the town can have the town they always wish they could have. That's sort of the idea. Revelation 12.12 is interesting because the wrath of God is not the only wrath we see in Revelation. Remember... Satan was thrown out of heaven. He's got full access to heaven today. So if you went to heaven, one of the things you could see was Satan, I guess, if you have access to wherever it is he comes. And it says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, because Satan's been thrown out. Yay! He finally got thrown out, him and his angels. But woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devils come down to you having great wrath. And in fact, we know the wages of sin is death. When the world promises you life, what they mean actually, in reality, is death. When the world promises you safety and security, what it actually is promising you is death. And when the world promises you, you can have it your way, 
and your happiness will totally be in your control, what it really means is death. Because that's what the wages of sin is. So the devil has wrath. So now we're caught between these anvil. The world has God's wrath coming from one side and Satan's wrath coming from the other side. Not a happy time. Revelation 14.8 is very interesting. We saw this. Another angel followed saying, Babylon has fallen, fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. We see this in the book of Romans. It's really clear. Sin has its own internal consequences built in that constitutes the wrath of God. For the wrath of God is poured out against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who allow people to actually get what they want. And in doing so, they get addiction and then loss of mental faculties. They, can't, they have lost, lose reality. As people embrace what the Bible calls fornication, which is a choice between a faithful husband, which is God, and this harlotry with the world, it's a picture that's all through the Bible, what you get when you get that is wrath. Or when, when we lean into that, that's what we get. And, you know, look, go, go talk to an addict. Ask them what their life is like when they're falling into their addiction. It's full of wrath. That's, that's what the answer is going to be. You know, we're delivered from that. We have the power to overcome it, but we have to choose to walk in that power. Because that's kind of the point of Romans, is uh, you can have this wrath if you really want it, but why? Why? Will you still be a child of God if you drink that wrath? Yes. But you're going to be a child of God that's under wrath that doesn't have to be. So, you know, stop. Stop hitting yourself in the head with a hammer. You know, that, that's kind of Romans in a nutshell. So, Revelation 14.10, when the people take the mark of the beast, they get the wrath of God with it. So not only are they drinking the wrath of the world, they're taking in the wrath of God. Again, the anvil. And then last week we saw the grapes of wrath, which is going to end up with a massive battle with tons of blood in the streets, so to speak. So, this is a very difficult time on the earth, but it's the sheriff cleaning up the city. It's necessary so that the world can be restored. And that is the part that's exciting about this. The world will be restored. Justice will be brought on the earth. Real justice, not fake justice. Verse 2, So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Again, this is reminiscent of the plagues of Egypt. In the plagues of Egypt, they had boils, probably the same sort of thing. And in the plagues of Egypt, it seems that the Egyptians got the plagues and the Israelites were spared. That seems to be the pattern. And here, these terrible boils fall upon those who had the mark of the beast. It's possible that at this point in time, there's really not any believers left because they've all been murdered because there are going to be large amounts of martyrs come out of this time period. Either way, the sores are only upon those left on the earth. Now, who is left on the earth? We've seen seven seals that had judgments in them. In the seventh seal, we saw seven trumpets blow. Each of them had judgments in them. And in the seventh trumpet now, we have these seven bowls poured out. And if you go back and look at this, uh, we can actually compute who's left. Under the fourth seal... A fourth of humanity died. That was the first mass loss of human life. 
there are other things, of course, that happen. Five months of tormenting, and there's people who die in an earthquake. And so there, this doesn't mean other people couldn't have died, but we just start counting up the, the mass reports. So a fourth die. And then in the sixth trumpet, a third of humanity died. So if we started with eight billion, and the first thing that happens is a fourth die, that gets you down to six. And then if a third of six dies, that's two. So at this point in time, no more than half of the world is left on the earth. It's a gruesome time. Then the second bowl, then the second angel, verse 3, poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man. And every living creature in the sea died. Now this word sea is used to apply to the Sea of Galilee. It's used to apply to the Mediterranean Sea. And it's used to refer to the sea that God made, like God made the heaven and the sea, the oceans. So this could be something fairly local to only torment people that are on the earth. It could be everything. Whichever it is, it's much bigger than what happened in Egypt. Remember in Egypt we had water turned to blood, but it was just the Nile River. And now we have the oceans affected with mass death accompanying it. And that's not all. The third bowl, verse 4, then the third angel poured out his bowls on the rivers and springs of water. So now we actually have the drinking source. We don't drink ocean water in the main. But now we have the drinking sources turned to blood. Of course, that's going to have a hugely negative effect. Whether this is something different or the same as wormwood that was poured out on the waters and they turned bitter don't know. These judgments are not necessarily sequential. You know, the scripture usually gives things more in cycles, but they could be. But in any event, we're going to see here what the result of poisoning the drinking water is going to be. So they poured out the bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angels of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be. Now we've seen that all through Revelation. Was, is, is to come. That's the outline of a revelation. We saw what was and is in the first three chapters with the letters to the seven churches. And we've been looking at what is to come from chapter 4 on. But all that is is just a reflection of God who is eternal. He was, he is, he is to come. And we're going to see this dragon man, this false Jesus, was, is not, and is to come. But our God always was, always is, always will be. Because, verse 5, you have judged these things. This is the right thing to do. Cleaning up the earth is the right thing to do. Verse 6, For they, these people who took the mark of the beast, have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. There's three main ways the wrath of God's poured out on people. One is to give people what they want. If you look at Romans 1, it says the wrath of God is revealed against the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. It goes through and tells you three ways God pours out His wrath. The first is to give us over to our passions. The second is to give us or to our lust, and then give us over to our passions, and then give us over to a debased mind. So it's like God saying, no, 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 you can't do that. No, that's all hurt you too much. No, it. Okay, go ahead. And then we get to that phase, and he says, no, 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 don't do that. Don't, don't do that. Okay, go ahead. And then he gets to the next one and says, well, no, no, don't do that. Okay, go ahead. 
So giving us what we want, that's the normal way that the wrath of God is poured out. But another way that the wrath of God is poured out is if he just comes in and initiates, like the flood. I'm cleaning up this mess. The earth is full of violence. I'm starting over again. I'm starting over again because I do not want an earth full of violence. And that's part of what's happening here. And actually we see both of those kinds of wrath being poured out. And the third kind of wrath is to give people what they wished on others. You do this as parents, right? Mine. I take, take it away from my brother. Oh, okay, you did that. I'm taking that away from you. And that's what we see here. You have given them blood to drink because they shed blood. It's their just due. This word just do is very interesting. It's the word axios, the Greek word axios. Let me show you where else it shows up in Revelation. I think you'll find it very fascinating. Revelation 3.4, let's look at it. Now we're back in the letters to the churches. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are axios. They're worthy. Everyone's going to get their just due for rewards, for deeds done in the flesh, whether good or bad. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Now, we tend to lean into the reality and the truth that we don't have to worry about our sins because Jesus is worthy and He bore those sins on the cross. And we should lean into that because it's worth leaning into. That's the happiest news ever that we can count on just the worthiness of Jesus for our entrance into the family of God and our eternal destiny as one of His children. But you know, children have parents that want them to grow up if they have good parents. And good parents give their children their just due. They don't have them inherit the family business if they're a heroin addict. And what's at stake here with our rewards is, are we going to inherit the family business or not? Well... If we have our garments spotless, then we're worthy. Look at Revelation 4, 11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. There's a reason why the notion of a creator is under attack by the world. Because if there's a creator, then the creator has authority. And if the creator has authority, then we're accountable. And that means we can't just do whatever we want to with no consequences. So what we do is we jump off of buildings and then curse God because He broke our leg when we fell down. Because He didn't suspend gravity for us. No, God is worthy because He created the earth. We don't have a magicianless magic act for the earth to be created. Which is what many people claim. Magic without a magician. Chapter 5, verse 2. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who's worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And this was at the very beginning of the judgments. We saw, we, you know, we have seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls that we're in today. And these have to happen for the world to come to fruition, for justice to be brought in. And we saw it's time for it to happen and nobody was worthy. Nobody was axios. It was nobody's just due. No one was deserving to open these seals. And John cried. Like, how's, well, how's, the, how's the cavalry going to come in and save us from the Comanches if this doesn't happen? And an angel comes up and says, Ah, but we found one who is. It's the Lamb of God, slain 
from the foundation of the world. Jesus is deserving. So He gets to open the seals. He's the one that gets to bring all things to completion. Revelation 5.12. They're singing. This is again from Handel's Messiah. I'm not sure how they got Handel's Messiah in the Bible since it was written so far later, but somehow it happened. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom. I wish I could sing that. I just can't do it. I've got a bluegrass voice. What can I do? (laughs) Deserving. He's deserving because he learned obedience even to death on the cross and became the king of humanity through his testimony. He had a faithful testimony and did not fear death. So he is worthy. And then, of course, we come to Revelation 16, 6. They're worthy to get blood because that's what their life's about. They shed the blood of the saints. It's their just due. Have that in mind when you read 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we shall all receive rewards for deeds done in the flesh, whether good or bad. We're going to get our just due. Not for whether we're children or not, but as children. That's why we want to watch and live faithfully as witnesses, not afraid of any kind of death, especially rejection from the world. Verse 7, Then I heard another voice from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Here's the altar speaking again. I just love this image. I just think that new earth is going to be the coolest place ever. I just think you're going to sit down your glass and the furniture is going to say, Ouch! Move it over a little. In this case, he's making a declarative statement. The Previously, it was actually given an instruction, the altar was. True and righteous are your judgments. This is really important because this ties back to Daniel 9, verse 24. Let's look at it. 9.24, Daniel 9.24. Remember this. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and your holy city. This is what we're doing here. We're bringing into completion this 70 weeks prophecy. Remember there were 69 weeks of years that started with a a, a declaration, yeah, a declaration to rebuild the city and ends with the anointed one, the Messiah, being cut off. That's Jesus dying and not being put in as king. That was the first 69 weeks of years. And we're in a holding pattern today waiting for that 70th week of years, that seven-year period that we we call the tribulation, to begin. It will begin when there's a treaty between the Antichrist and the nation of Israel. And in the middle of that time, there'll be the abomination of desolations. And at the end of that time, the kingdom's going to come into uh, reality on earth. And we're in this time period, but look at this prophecy. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city, for Israel and for Jerusalem. And what's going to happen in those 70 weeks? To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins. That's already happened. How many sins did Jesus die for? All of them. Sins of the whole world. Past, present, future. That's happened. To make a reconciliation for iniquity. That's already happened. To bring in everlasting righteousness. Has that happened? You, all you've got to do is pick up a newspaper to know that hadn't happened. Well, you know what's happening right now in the book of Revelation that we're in? Everlasting righteousness is being brought in. See, this prophecy is being fulfilled. Jesus came in the first 69 weeks to take care of sin and iniquity. And now, in the 70th week, it's actually being brought to earth in reality. 
the sheriff is coming in and cleaning up the town. Verse 8, Revelation 16. The fourth angel then poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. I just think it's real interesting that the sun is a him. I wonder if the sun can talk. The furniture can talk. Maybe the sun will be able to talk. They do in the cartoons. It seems like everything we love about cartoons is going to actually happen in the new earth. (laughs) And power was given to him to scorch men with fire. Now, in spite of all the rhetoric, what's actually known today is that most weathering patterns are affected most severely by sunspots, solar flares. And nobody knows what makes them happen. And nobody knows how it happens. But that's the best correlation we have. As a matter of fact, the best weather forecasts come about looking at a little place in the Pacific Ocean's water temperature. And when the water temperature changes one degree, we're going to have El Nino, and that's one rain pattern. And if it's another degree, it's La Nina, and that's another weather pattern. And nobody knows how that happens. I don't know if it's volcanic activity, solar activity, whatever. The more we know, the more we realize how little we know. Meanwhile, claiming we know a lot more than we actually know. Uh, That's kind of the pattern. What's going to happen is the sun's going to go crazy. And verse 9, men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. Didn't do it. Now this is interesting because we saw one time previously that men did give God glory, and it's in uh, Revelation 11:13. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, and the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. So here they're given glory because they realize God did this. Because remember, glory, doxa, is only just something getting credit for what, what it really is. You can have shameful, you really are, or you can have fantastic, you really are. But in this case, these people are recognizing God did this because they're blaspheming God, but they're not repenting. So there's one kind of glory you can give God and say, well, God did that. But the glory that God's actually after is to say, you are the authority to whom I need to bow my knee. That's the one actually God wants. And that's the one they're not willing to give. Verse 10. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. Now, the word throne shows up 41 times in Revelation. One of the overriding messages of Revelation is God is on his throne. We see most of these prophecies happen with the throne either directly in front of John or in mind. But there's another throne. And that's the throne of Satan. And that's on earth. We saw that the throne of Satan was in the capital city of Rome in the province of Asia. So human government and earthly power is still the domain of Satan, even though Jesus said, all authority is given unto me. Because Jesus hadn't actually taken office yet. This is a really long, lame duck period for Satan. This particular bowl is poured right on the throne of the beast, which is not going to last very much longer. And his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. Not sure what this is, a kingdom becoming full of darkness, but what is clear is it creates massive pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. No matter what happens, they don't repent of their deeds. It seems that everyone on earth who's taken the mark of the beast is now Pharaoh. Their heart is hardened and they refuse to bow to the commands of God. 
The next time we will see this word pain will be in Revelation 21.4. And it will say, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, and no more pain. That's a blessed hope, but there's a lot of pain that has to happen to get there. Verse 12, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Euphrates River is still a major river, and its water was dried up, so the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Here's the unholy trinity. The dragon, the dragon man, and the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which will go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So here it comes. This is the great battle. This is the part that the epic movies always end with. A huge battle. This is the battle of the five armies. This is the battle of the whole world. This is World War... I don't know how many World Wars it'll be by then, but it's the final one, whatever the final one is. And then we have this very interesting thing where all of a sudden Jesus pops up and says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And then the narrative picks back up again. And they gathered them together to the place in he- called in Hebrew Armageddon. So they're going to have this great battle. And right in the middle of gather them together in Armageddon is this editorial statement. Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches. I ask, why is that there? It seems kind of odd. It's almost like a breakaway to a commercial message or something. I'm not sure what the answer is, but it certainly seems as though one possibility, if we're rooting for the sheriff to clean up the town, we're rooting for Gandalf and the good guys to get to Helm's Deep at just the right time so they can deliver the world from the orcs. We're waiting for the trumpet to go and the cavalry to come over the hill, and we're real excited. I mean, the world's about to get cleaned up. And we're rooting for the bad guys to die. That's what we always do in movies, right? Yeah, he got killed. It's a, it a little too gruesome, but it was really good. He, he kind of breaks in here and says, Hey, you know, let's remember what this book's about. I am telling you that we overcome and we win, but let's remember what the book's about. The book's not mainly about who wins. The book's mainly about what I want you to do. And what does God want us to do? What's the message all the way through here? Be faithful witnesses, don't fear death. What's he say? Watch. Keep your garments spotless because judgment comes for you too. Judgment for believers has a different purpose. It's the same judgment. God poured out the same judgment on Israel that He did Babylon. Totally different reason. In the case of Babylon, He said, you're no more. We're not having any more Babylon. When we have Babylon in this beast, it's Rome with the power and authority of Babylon. It's not Babylon again in the sense of the ancient country Nebuchadnezzar and so forth. But in the case of Israel, he gave them the same judgment. They're exiled. And he says in Jeremiah, what is it, 29-11? Hey, you're going to have a half of Jerusalem die and a whole, whole lot of people are going to be killed and you're going to be taken out of your homes. But I only have your best interest in mind. Everybody said, what? How is that my best interest? Just watch and see. And of course, we can watch and see how amazing that was for Israel. God has our best interest in mind, but judgment still happens. So watch. Be a faithful witness. Don't fear rejection from the world. Don't fear death. Do what I ask you to do. 
And if you don't, you end up without a garment. Now, have you ever had a dream where you showed up at the fancy ball naked or you forgot to change your clothes and put on the fancy gown or something? Well, that's what's going to happen. You're going to show up at the judgment seat and we're going to be, you know, no present, nothing to show. So, watch. Don't be naked and ashamed. And he called them together to a place called Armageddon. Well, we'll end with that. Let's finish the chapter first. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. So now... We've finished the seven bowls. And it's interesting what we've seen. We've seen water turn to blood. Remember that from Exodus? Frogs. These were demonic frogs as opposed to physical frogs dying like we saw in Exodus. Dead animals. All the sea creatures. Boils or sores on people's skin. Hail. Really bad hail. Darkness. And this darkness was accompanied with pain. We've actually seen everything but lice, flies, and locusts. Maybe the sun killed all them, I don't know. But it's the same plagues. It's the same image. God is delivering His people from the slavery of sin and the world. He's delivering the world and creation from corruption. And He's going to restore all things. And instead of the Passover, we're going to have this great battle. So what about the great battle? Well, before we do that, let me make a couple points. This talent, according to the internet, was 50 pounds. I looked up, again, the internet. Two pounds is the biggest hailstone anybody's ever seen. So if that's correct, a 50-pound hailstone, you could see why men would blaspheme God because the hail plague was exceedingly great. Nobody knows, but it's going to be really bad. That's fairly clear from the context. And in verse 20, this term that says every island fled away, that's the same phrase as is in the verse, and the whole world went after him. So it's some of every kind. And so it actually could be literally every island, but it also could just be islands all over the world. Given, given technology the way it is, it's possible somebody will be listening to this at some point as this is all unfurling. And I'll just tell you, don't go on vacation to Hawaii during this time period. Stay in the Midwest somewhere. This appears to have massive tectonic activity. Mountains, islands, most mountains are just volcanoes of some sort uh, sticking up out of the ocean. And perhaps massive volcanic activity associated with this is is, uh, certainly one possible way this could be done. So let's just finish with Armageddon. It's interesting, this is the only place in the Bible the word Armageddon shows up. It sure took on a lot of fame, even though it just shows up one time. And as it should. It just means the hill of Megiddo. Megiddo is an ancient city. It was a very, very sought-after city because it was the best toll booth. You know, if you're a king, the main thing you want to do is be able to take money from other people without having to work for it. 
That's what governments do in general and kings in specific. And the best way to do that is tax trade. There are two major trade routes that go right by Megiddo. So if you have that city, you can collect a lot of taxes. It's a very fought-over plain in general. The valley there is called the Jezreel Valley today, the area of Megiddo. And let's just turn to Zechariah 14, and I think there we will see this battle. Zechariah 14, verse 1, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. So if these are both talking about the same thing, and I suspect they are, although... You know, I'm not sure. Then what's going to happen is the armies will be gathered in Jezreel and then marched down to Jerusalem. Which, if you know something about the train there, makes some sense. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city go into captivity. Now, I suspect that this and the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. I suspect, actually, that that part of the prophecy already happened in 70 AD. You know, a lot of times these prophecies have, like, double fulfillments. And the fulfillments are all interbedded with each other in the in the prophecy which is one of the reasons you can't get too dogmatic about things looking in the future uh, like you'll have a prophecy about Jesus and in one part of this one sentence it's talking about his first advent and the next few words talking about his second advent then verse 4 for in that day his feet will stand on the mount of olives which faces Jerusalem on the east and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, half of it toward the south. Basically, the Mount of Olives is a ridge, and Jesus is going to come down on it. This is when he returns, and when his foot lights down, it's going to break in two and move apart, and then water is going to start flowing up. And water is going to flow down to the Mediterranean and down to the Dead Sea. It's going to flow both ways, and the Dead Sea is going to become living. So, verse 6, it shall come to pass in that day, there'll be no light. We saw darkness uh, happening. That uh, could be the same darkness or a different one. Verse 7, it shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day or night, but at evening time it shall happen, that it will be light. And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem half toward the eastern sea, half the western sea, Mediterranean Dead Sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one, and his name one. So this is apparently this last battle. Now we saw previously there was going to be a gathering of a myriad of myriads of soldiers and there was going to be blood running uh, like 180 miles all the way up to the bridle of a horse. So this is going to be a massive battle with tremendous loss of lives and this is like the last battle. We'll see in verse nine, sorry, in chapter 19 here coming up, Jesus coming down on his white horse. So apparently he kind of rides the white horse, people behind him touches down on the Mount of Olives, and this is part of the culmination of the battle. It really is going to be kind of like one of those old westerns where just at the last minute Jesus comes down and saves everybody, apparently. So Armageddon will be like the last cleaning up. So now it's complete. The wrath of God is complete. And what's remaining is to actually have Jesus come back and clean things up. And we'll get there in chapter 19. But next time, we'll do chapter 17 and 18. And we're going to have another one of these interludes that gives us a lot of explanation about what is actually taking place and where the shift is happening. And what we're going to do is see the shift from the world system to God's system. 
and it's going to be a dramatic shift. Okay? Uh, God, thank you for being willing to clean up this place and restore it. I pray, Lord, that it will happen soon and that you will attend that cleaning up with all dispatch that we might see the fulfillment of your righteousness on the earth. Meanwhile, Lord, I pray that you'll help us focus on what you gave us to do, which is not to sit and just root for this to happen, but to actively interact with the world in the way you ask us to do it, which is to be faithful witnesses, to do your commands in the spheres that you gave us to do those commands. Not to wish that we had a more important perch to do your commands from, but to be faithful with the perch you've given us and to interact with people and the opportunities we have in such a way that we're deserving, that we are deserving of the power that you gave us, the authority you gave us, and that we may hear from you. Well done. Jesus' name, amen.